0: Perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Moses then goes on from there and he condemns. Man's foolishness, how in the in the light of this great God, this rock, this perfect one, man still rebels against him. The Lord blesses his people and he guides them. And Moses is certainly familiar with this experience of seeing God's hand of protection and leading his people and caring for them, and yet so often they seem to forget him. Deuteronomy 32, 18 says, You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. And so their wicked rebellion stirs up God's anger, his just wrath against them, and they are punished, and they suffer consequences, but God does not abandon his people. He often used enemy nations as a means of punishing them, the the Philistines and the Assyrians and the Babylonians, among others. But in the end, God always preserves this this faithful remnant of people who are his followers, who are faithful to him, those who repent and who turn to him. And and he does so, He, he preserves this faithful remnant, in order to vindicate his name. Because as these enemy nations are used to come up against the Israelites, in, in their minds, they are striving to destroy both Israel and its God that, that, that the Israelites worship. And so by, by preserving a remnant, it is God's way of showing those who remain faithful, he preserves. He is good, he is God, he is still sovereign over his creation, and his people cannot be destroyed. And he displays his power and he rescues them. And in that moment, God says this of these enemies, and I want you to catch how he describes those who are trying to destroy the Israelites, those who are trying to destroy their God. He says, Where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge. Let them rise up and help you, let them be your protection. That word for refuge, the Hebrew word masseh is a, is a place to run to. It is a, a, a place to go and, and to find shelter, to escape from something else, to hide in. David picks up on the language of refuge and uses it many times in the Psalms, but as early as 2 Samuel 22, David is singing about how God has delivered him from his enemies, from Saul and from others who have come after him, and David in 2 Samuel 22 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. God is called a refuge some 47 times in the Psalms, many of those from David. A rock a place of shelter, something to to hide in, to go to, to to rest in, to depend on when everything else is crashing down. One of the examples of that is David in Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge, who, who runs to him, who finds shelter in him, who takes refuge in him. Where do you seek refuge? Where, where do you go for protection, for stability? We would, in our vernacular, maybe say your, your happy place, that, that setting you go to when there's just so much going on and you just want some relief from that. What, what rock do others see you flee to in times of trouble? What would others who watch you see as your refuge when things are going wrong? We're in Acts chapter six this morning, and we're going to look at the passage of, script, of scripture commonly called Stephen's speech. Um, Stephen is is delivering a defense, if you will. It's the longest speech of its kind in the Book of Acts, so we will not read all of it. and includes. Parts of chapter 6, the last part of chapter 6, and then all of chapter 7 actually is is Stephen speaking. So we won't read the entire passage. I would encourage you, though, if you haven't already done so, to to take the time to read Acts chapter 7 and what Stephen says. He was a Greek-speaking Jew who becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. He's involved in the early church in Jerusalem. We've already been introduced to Stephen last week at the beginning of Acts 6. He's one of the seven Greek-speaking Jews who is assigned the task of making sure that the food distribution to the widows is being done in an equitable way. It's being done well. He is one of those who is said to have wisdom and integrity and be filled with the Spirit, and he is called on to do that. It's clear that Stephen is also one who is proclaiming the truth about Jesus Christ. He is taking the opportunities that he has to speak about Jesus to his fellow Greek-speaking Jews. Very much as we will see Paul's ministry, and we know this from Paul's letter, what Paul often did is when he went into a city, he found the synagogue. He found the gathering place for Jews, that those who believed in one true God, or at least professed that belief. And he went there and he said, here's the truth of how that one true God has sent his son To be the Savior, Stephen uses his synagogue, and and we're introduced to that here in Acts chapter 6 that there is this synagogue, this gathering place of Greek speaking Jews, of descendants of those who had been slaves at one time and who are now called freedmen, and they have this synagogue that they meet in. And it is clear from the response of the fellow colleagues in the synagogue that Stephen's been preaching to them, that he has been talking to them about Jesus Christ, that he has been pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. And at some point, his Jewish brethren take offense. And Acts chapter 6, verse 11 says they've had enough of Stephen, and they seize him, and they falsely accuse him of the charge of blasphemy. Blasphemy is to attack someone's name. It is to take someone's good name and, and to slander against it in some way. For the Jews, blasphemy had a very specific meaning. It was to try to destroy the name of God. It was to say something about God or to claim something about God or to do something that in some way diminished God or attacked at God. And so Stephen is charged with blasphemy because he is declaring the same truths that Jesus taught and Jesus was accused of blasphemy. We know that was the the ultimate charge that the Jews used against him was he's claiming to be God, which indeed he was. And Stephen's now repeating those same claims, and he is now accused of blasphemy. And so if you look at Acts chapter 6, verse 11, speaking of the opponents of Stephen, it says, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Notice that the charge, verse 13, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, that is the temple, and the law of Moses. At the heart of the, the, the Jewish accusations against Stephen is this issue of where people are taking refuge. What they are going to, to rest in and rely upon. Those of you who've been part of the, the Monday night group that's been reading the, the R.C. Sproul book, The Holiness of God, may recall from chapter 2 when he's talking about Isaiah and Isaiah's vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6, and he sees the seraphim, and they are saying, holy, holy, holy. And Sproul makes the point that it's very rare in Scripture that you see something said, repeat it, Three times that, that that's done as a way of intensifying, of, of underlining, of exclaiming in some way, of, of, of pointing to the importance of that. And so holy, holy, holy is the one attribute of God that is intensified to that degree. But Sproul also points out that among the very few instances where you see that triple repetition in Scripture, one of them is in Jeremiah chapter 7, which is a—it's the temple chapter, it's sometimes called. It's the prophet Jeremiah Speaking to the Jewish people and he is condemning them because essentially they are believing we can do whatever we want. We can live however we please because we're here in Jerusalem and we have the temple of God right with us here. The the dwelling place of God is this temple. We're in Jerusalem. The temple's here. Therefore, all is good. We're safe. And so Jeremiah says to them, no, no, you're being unjust, you're oppressing the weak, you, you, you're shedding blood, and yet you deceive yourselves, he says in Jeremiah 7, 4, by saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You, you're out there as if you're, you're trying to exclaim that we can do whatever we want because of the temple of the Lord, because we've we sort of got this umbrella of protection on us, because God is here in this temple. You think this building makes you safe, and in essence, that's what what Stephen's encountering is the people who think the building makes them safe. In one of his encounters with the Pharisees, Jesus condemns them for this sort of strict adherence to the rules and regulations that they had built up all around the Mosaic law, all of their different interpretations and the details that they had added to the law of Moses. And and Jesus condemns them because they're, they're holding on to all of these rules and regulations, and yet in their hearts, they are rebelling against God. They are not obeying him. They are not actually worshiping him or sacrificing to them within their hearts. And Jesus says, you're all about protecting the the temple and the rules and the rituals. And you're doing all the external. And I tell you, he says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, I tell you something than the temple, something greater than the temple is here. This is why they accuse him of blasphemy. Because they have come to regard that temple as the dwelling place of God, as the place that makes them all safe. And Jesus is saying, if you would only see, you would know there is something even greater than the temple now in your midst. God in flesh is before them. And he went on in that passage to refer to himself as the son of man and the Lord of the Sabbath. There was the promise of Jesus that that. Stephen also clearly proclaims, they, the, the instigators point out and, and they say that Stephen is now repeating the claim Jesus made about destroying this place, uh, the temple. It, it, it's in Matthew, Mark, and John that Jesus is quoted as, as saying that phrase, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. We understand with the benefit of reading the Gospels that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body, that he is God in flesh, and he's speaking about his own death and resurrection. Destroy this body, and in three days I will raise it up. But those words stir up the anger of his opponents. The fact that Jesus said it upset them, the fact that Stephen is now repeating it and claiming its fulfillment in Jesus is upsetting them because their attitude is, Why would you ever even talk about destroying the temple? All they can see is this building, this structure that that Herod led the construction of, that went on over decades, that becomes this this place that to them is so sacred that, that this is where God dwells amongst his people. And how can you even possibly speak of the temple in terms of destruction in any way? Many of the Jews... At the time of Jesus, and, and obviously just a short time later at the time of Stephen, have, they have put their hopes in the performance of rituals. They are going to the temple to, to run through the motions, to do the things that they think are, are ultimately making them right before God. And just like the people in Jeremiah's day, when Jeremiah says, you just just keep saying the temple, the temple, the temple, we're okay because of the temple, so too they are doing the same thing in Jesus's day and now in Stephen's time. God is there and so I can do whatever I want, I just go there and I do my rituals, I do what I need to do and and, and I feel like I have earned his blessing and, and I've been made right with him. They believed that their standing before God was assured on the basis of the ceremonies they participated in in the temple that was in their midst. Derek Thomas, great commentator, writes this. He says, the Jews came to believe that association with the temple was tantamount to membership in God's family. Stephen's sermon was designed to show them that was never the case. That's what we're going to see in Stephen's sermon. He's, he is trying to show them, you are wrong. This is You have put your refuge. You have made the temple, the building, and the law of Moses and the rules around it. You have made that your refuge. You, you're, you're finding your rock to be your obedience, or so you claim your obedience to this law and your fulfilling of these rituals. And it doesn't work that way, and it's never worked that way. And so chapter 7 begins, and he is standing in front of the Jewish high priest. He has been charged with blasphemy, that is making a mockery or destroying the name of God in some way. And he is given the floor to speak and to try to defend himself. And what Stephen does is he gives this, this walk through Old Testament history. He goes back to Abraham and to God's call of Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob. And he, he tracks through from Jacob to Jacob's sons. Primarily he focuses in then on Joseph who is one of Jacob's sons, and and how Joseph is mistreated. Joseph ends up down in Egypt, where God takes this one who has been mistreated by his own people and elevates him to the place of serving Pharaoh. And then Stephen walks through to to say, and while they were in Egypt, then, then they are enslaved, and then we move into the time of Moses and the exile, and he ends this historical lesson. This is just sort of a, a, a skim over about a thousand years of Old Testament history, and he moves then to Solomon, building the temple in Jerusalem. W- w- what Stephen is saying factually is something they all agree on. They've read this. They know this. This is all facts of Jewish history. They could they could recite the same timeline that, that Stephen is giving here, starting with God calling Abraham, that that. Abraham, you're going to go to a land that you've never seen before, a land you don't know, and I am promising that I will give that land to your descendants, and your descendants will be blessed and will be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth, and they will inherit that land. And so all of that is part of God's calling of of Abraham that Stephen is looking back on. But it wouldn't come easy, the fulfillment of these promises. God goes on to describe 400 years of affliction for the Israelites under the control of another nation, under the control of Egypt. And Stephen, again, giving facts, describing, reciting facts that they would all agree on. Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had Jacob, and, and Jacob's son Joseph was mistreated by his brothers, was sold into slavery in Egypt. But verse 9 of Acts chapter 7 tells us again that God was with him. God was with Joseph. Joseph was not alone when he was sent to Egypt, when he was sold into slavery. God was with him, and God preserved him. And, And God not only preserved Joseph, but he uses Joseph then to preserve the whole line of the Israelites. All of Jacob's descendants are ultimately saved from a famine by the wisdom that God gave to Joseph in preserving food. For them in Egypt. And while they're in Egypt, the Hebrews multiplied and and grew so much that a new Egyptian ruler comes into place and he begins to see the Hebrews as a threat. He sees them growing and he's concerned, and so he enslaves them and forces upon them the slaughter of Hebrew baby boys. All of that takes place in Egypt, and yet God is with his people. Through all of this, God is preserving his people. And so you go down to Acts chapter 7 verse 20 and it speaks of at this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. Verse 20 tells us God was there. God was looking upon his people. God sees the birth of Moses and and he determines Moses is beautiful and God is now working through Moses. Moses is the next piece, if you will, in God's plan. So just as God had taken Joseph through his slavery in Egypt and elevated him to the place of preserving his his people, his relatives, the the Hebrew people, he now is taking Moses and he assures that, that Moses is raised in the home of the Egyptian ruler of Pharaoh. He has this baby brought into Pharaoh's home. Follow on down and at the age of 40, Moses thought that God was ready to use him to rescue the Israelites from out of Egypt, but that was not yet to be. On the contrary, Moses got caught in the middle of a dispute between two other Israelites who were enslaved in Egypt. They did not trust Moses because of something they had seen previously. They wanted no part of him. And so Acts 7.29 says, At this retort, at the fact that Moses was rebuffed, Moses fled. "...and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons." You should be seeing a thread here that that Stephen is is pulling through all this. Abraham, stranger in a land that he has never been in before. He is taken to a place that he has never seen before. Goes where he he does not know, he's simply following God's leading, and he goes into this land as as a foreigner, if you will. Joseph was a foreigner in Egypt, a slave who God preserves in Egypt. Now Moses is sojourning in a foreign land. He's in a wilderness area, what is modern-day Saudi Arabia. And he spends the next 40 years shepherding the sheep of his father-in-law. He is out in that wilderness, living out in obscurity, tending his father-in-law's sheep. And all the while, God is with him. God, during that 40 years, is preparing Moses to be the leader who will walk his people through that wilderness when they are a people in exile. Moses was literally in the middle of nowhere when God appears to him in a burning bush and and commissions him to go back to Egypt. One commentator puts it this way, the, the rabbis taught that this locale, the place of the burning bush, this locale showed that no place was too desolate for God's presence. The fact that Moses, in the wilderness, tending sheep, no other surround, by himself, desolate place, and God appears to him there. Is to again say, God is with him. And Stephen is using these accounts to try to say to them, listen, the grounds of the temple are not the only dwelling place of God. God came to Moses out in the middle of the desert. We know the the story of the exodus that followed. Moses is sent back down to Egypt to lead the Israelites out. And Stephen describes how God did signs and wonders through Moses. When he goes to Pharaoh down in Egypt, God does these powerful things through Moses in Egypt. Verse 37 then of Acts chapter 7 shows how the Israelites now begin to recognize Moses as a prophet. It says, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brother's. Uh, that, that's followed. Uh, let me go back. In fact, verse 36, This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. The Israelites recognize in Moses someone sent by God. So he has come down to Egypt. He has delivered them. They cross the Red Sea. He is someone who speaks the, the words of God, the oracles of God. God is with Moses. God is with Moses and his people as he leads them out into the wilderness and toward the land that he had promised to Abraham's descendants. All right, Stephen's tying this all together. There's this this land that has been promised, and now Moses is the one who is leading them there. Yet, despite all that, the signs and the wonders, despite the rescue and the deliverance from slavery and now the parting of the Red Sea and being out there and and, and seeing God leading them, what do the people do? Stephen reports it. They rebelled. They rebelled against Moses. They made a golden calf to worship. If you look down in verse 41, and they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. This is the... The people who have seen all of these things, they have seen God's presence in their midst. And now they make this calf and they sacrifice and they, they are proud of themselves. They are, they are and then in the next verse 42, God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written. And he goes on to quote from Amos, essentially what God does is he gives them over to their sin you want to destroy yourselves this way, I am going to unleash you. I am going to allow you to to go and and do what you want to do. In verses 42 and 43, Stephen is quoting from the Old Testament prophet Amos, who rebukes Israel for its history of the the same pattern, idolatry, rejecting the, the one true God, embracing idols, rejecting the God who delivered them. And yet, again, God, in His mercy, preserves a remnant. Despite their unfaithfulness, God is not done with them. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years, but God is merciful to them and raises up Joshua. Verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness, the tabernacle in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David. So he's reminding them both of the tabernacle, the meeting place, the place where God was in their midst, but also saying to them, here's here's Stephen recounting this, God did this. They go in finally to the land that God had promised Abraham, and God dispossesses the land from the others. God takes care of the enemies right before their eyes. They see God give them victory after victory in that land. All during that time of wandering into the wilderness, God was was there in the tabernacle, the tent that moved around and went with them at the center of Israelite life, a constant reminder to them. God is amongst you. God is your refuge. God is your deliverer. And Israel's on again, off again relationship, lack of faithfulness to God continues on. He then goes on to speak of King David, David's desire to build a more permanent place for the dwelling place of God. God says no to David, but he commissions Solomon to do that, and the temple is built in Jerusalem. It's at this point that Stephen's understanding of the purpose of all of this history now parts ways with his audience that he's speaking to in this moment. This is where they've all agreed on the facts. Yes, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Solomon, Moses, David, Solomon. Got it. This is where they part ways. Solomon has built the temple and they regard that temple as the singular dwelling place of God. God as the place of utmost importance and the focus of all of their religious activity. And they all believed mistakenly, wrongly, that having the temple in their midst is what made everything good. It's exactly what Jeremiah warned about. The temple became a good luck charm. It became sort of the place of their security because it was there, things were well, and it didn't matter how they acted or what they believed or what other gods they worshipped over the centuries, because ultimately they had this God, the one that they had heard of that they knew and all of the history that went with it. He was still in their midst. He was in his house, and they were safe. And Stephen is now saying, you're with me so far on on this temple thing? Now you've got it all wrong in your perspective. Look at verse 47. It was Solomon, this is Stephen speaking, it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your father did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. This isn't... By the way, just a great lesson in the indwelling power of the Spirit to give wisdom and courage in a moment. There's nothing better than this. This is just, this is God's Spirit at work in a man. To stand before the scholars, the rabbis, those who knew that history as well or better than Stephen and who had thought about it and studied it. And Stephen is now standing in the midst of them and saying, don't you see? It's never been all about a land or a tent or a temple. Those, those things were important and they're part of God's promises. They're not insignificant, they're important parts of our history in which God worked. But the God of heaven and earth has never been confined to your building. There's never been a house that could hold him. He's never been confined to a geographic location as if he dwells here, but is is then not somewhere else like all of those idols out there who are limited. Heaven is his throne. His feet rest on the earth. He is God. No house can hold him. We know what Jesus preached in the gospel, so we know where Stephen is going with this when he says at the very end, the law that you could not keep, there in verse 53, the law is delivered by angels and you did not keep it. Stephen is saying to them at every turn, you, you, you're you, putting your hope and your adherence to the law and you have broken it again and again. You can't contain God. He's not for you to manage. He doesn't need your protection. It, it, his law you cannot keep. So here's, here's the point. This is what Jesus taught and this is where Stephen is going except that their their wrath is going to be so enraged that they're not going to let Stephen say much more at this point. Because what what Stephen is saying is all of this history that we've just walked through that you all agree about that was declared by the prophets who, by the way, your, your ancestors killed, all of it was pointing forward to a greater temple. All of it was pointing forward to God being among men in a way that wasn't just in a building, but God actually dwelling with men. To one, all of it was pointing to one greater than Moses. Even Moses said, There's a prophet coming who is greater than I. The law kept pointing to the fact that you and I can't keep it and there must be one who could fulfill it. And, and, and so, what God gave. Through Moses, what was built under Solomon. That was not the pinnacle of his work to save a people for himself. That was the the pointers. That was the things that were saying, you need something else. You need a greater temple. You need one to fulfill the law. It's all pointing to, and he uses the words in verse 52 when he said, And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. This is Stephen's point. All of this should have led you to say, it can't be all about this temple because we're coming here and we're making sacrifices and then we sin and we make new sacrifices and the day of atonement every year we, we, we repeat all this and it goes on and on and we can't keep the law and it seems futile. There must be something else. There must be a sacrifice, a righteous one. As Derek Thomas says, they they may well have known the facts of their ancestral history, but they were blind to its true significance. When Stephen says the coming of the righteous one, this is where the the wrath of the crowd now is enraged, because he's now saying, don't you see, Jesus is the fulfillment of this. From, From Abraham to Moses to David, the purpose of all this history is to point to Christ And and the one who is coming, who is God in flesh, he is the promised hope of Israel. Believe in him. He is the prophet who is greater than Moses, than the, the one that even Moses anticipated. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law that God gave through Moses that you and I can't keep. Jesus, when he says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days, is talking about his body. It all points to him. Everything that came before, Abraham, Moses, the tabernacle, David, the temple, the law, all of it is meant to keep focusing us forward to the coming of the Messiah, to the, to the substance. Those are the shadows. Jesus is the reality, is the substance. Jesus, the righteous one, came and walked among us. He says, but you betrayed him and you murdered him. You're the ones who've broken God's law. Here's, here's the point of, of just utter pushing them to their limits. They have brought him in on a charge of blasphemy, that he is mocking and defaming God, and Stephen is now saying, you are the ones who are blaspheming God. God has revealed all of these things. God has spoken his truth, and you are the ones who are wrongly interpreting these things. You're the ones who should have seen the promise of the Messiah being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God clearly prophesied all that he was doing, and then he did it before your eyes, and you have seen it, and you are now denying the work of God, and that is the definition of blasphemy. You're the ones who are guilty. Jesus is the righteous one. Jesus is the refuge. When, when Jesus died... The veil and the te- from the most holy place that separated the most holy place in the temple. That veil is torn in two to show that the way has now been opened. Jesus is now the new and living way to God. By his death on the cross, his sacrifice, he has now opened the way. There's no more need for a temple There's no more need to go to a place and go through rituals and sacrifices and continue to perform all of these these sorts of offerings to try to, to make atonement. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for sin, the once and for all offering that has satisfied God's wrath and made purification for sin. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that's why Stephen ends this by saying, if you reject that, With all of this history that's been pointing to that, if you reject that, you are a rebellious and stiff-necked people who continue to resist the testimony of the very Spirit of God. Just as your ancestors chafed under the leadership of Moses and then defiled the worship at the tabernacle and repeatedly shattered God's law, so now you are doing the same in your rejection of Jesus. Let's look at the last part of this. Verse 54, when they had heard these things, they were enraged. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, Do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Just the first few verses of chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. By every appearance... This is, for this young church of believers, must have seemed like the darkest and lowest point at this moment. Stephen, who who is somebody who is beloved, is killed from all that we read in chapter 6. He is a gracious guy who is wise, who spoke truth. His opponents had to invent lies just in order to bring charges against him because what he spoke, it tells us earlier in chapter 6, was so compelling. In fact, it it even says that when he stood in front of them, his countenance was so striking that it was hard for them to hate him. Stephen was just a winsome person who spoke truth, who was full of the Spirit. And they had to lie and and convince themselves that he he was the evil guy that they tried to portray him as. And when they finally unleash their fury at Stephen, he stands before them calmly and he looks to heaven, to his refuge. He looks, and and he's he's not trying at that point to incite them when he looks up and sees the Son of Man. Stephen is looking up and he is seeing his refuge. He is seeing the one that he has rested his hope in. And he cries out to Jesus Christ. And they grab him and they drag him outside the city and they are throwing rocks at him. And just like his Savior before him, Stephen pleads to God to spare them and be merciful and says, Lord, receive my spirit. Let me just give you four quick applications from Stephen's story. Four things that I think, I hope we can take away from this. Number one, read God's word. Read God's word. Stephen is not an apostle. We have no record that Stephen had had rabbinical training or was some scholar He's a believer in Jesus Christ who had heard the apostles' teaching and who had read the scriptures that were available to him. And he saw the storyline by God's spirit leading him, illuminating the scriptures to him. Stephen sees Jesus. And he sees in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and, and Moses and David and Solomon and the prophets. What he sees as he reads is God is preparing the way for the Messiah. Stephen wasn't doing anything special that isn't right here available for you and I to read Scripture. He simply walked back through Scripture, and he saw the most familiar historical accounts, and God illuminated his reading, and he saw Jesus Christ in these things. You and I have the same Old Testament that Stephen had, except we've got so much more. We've got the life of Christ in the Gospels, and we've got the rest of the New Testament and the teaching of the apostles from which to know his life. If we desire to be effective in our singular calling to make disciples of other people, we cannot do it apart from meditating on Scripture, apart from doing what Stephen did, and that's just reading Scripture, taking in Scripture. Have you read A gospel. Have you read through one of the gospels so far this year? Have you meditated on the life of Christ? We must be growing in our knowledge of scripture and we must be seeing life through the lens of scripture. As we look at this fallen world, we've got to be seeing it through scripture, through the redemption God is working. Second, believe God's word. Stephen doesn't merely possess knowledge about God's word. He believes it and he will not be silent. Stephen talked with the people there in his synagogue, those other Jews that he he went to synagogue with, and he pointed them to Jesus, even when that was becoming a point of contention. Stephen is still speaking because he believes this is true. You've got the wrong refuge. You're putting your hope in the wrong place. And he urges them to believe in Jesus. Stephen believed what he read, that God desires to save sinners and that he doesn't abandon his people. And so Stephen, boldly, by the power of the Spirit and the promises of God, keeps speaking to the point that he is now standing before the highest Jewish governing council that can take his life and believing God's promises. He says you're being a stiff-necked and rebellious people if you dismiss God's work in Jesus Christ. What do you believe from God's word about the world that we live in, and and how does that give you a different outlook from someone who does not believe in Jesus Christ? What do you believe about man, about man by his nature, what, what, what man's fundamental problem is and what his greatest need is? I would submit to you that at this time more than ever, you need to think clearly about these things, about such things as the depravity of man and the fact that we are in a fallen, broken world. What do you believe that... Scripture says about suffering and hardships in the future. And how does that give you an entirely different attitude from the hopelessness of the world around us? Read and believe God's word. Third, make Jesus your refuge. And this is just not some intellectual activity. Part of Stephen's message was that the patriarchs Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David all endured hardships. They all, to one degree or another, found themselves as either exiles in foreign lands or or being under the siege of, of enemies of some kind. They all went through pain. They all had experiences of feeling like they were alone. And they all had this in common of standing firm in the face of evil and having to encounter that. And each time, God showed himself faithful. Each of these is a testimony to the fact that God never abandoned them. He wasn't somewhere off in a tent. He wasn't just in a a temple somewhere and couldn't get to them and help them at the time. God was with them. He is the present refuge for his people. He is with us. God didn't always put an immediate end to their suffering. He didn't immediately remove the hardship. But he assured his people again and again I am your rock. I am your refuge. I am the immovable one. Run to me and rest in me. Making Jesus your refuge means acknowledging your weakness and your brokenness before him. It means seeking Jesus through his word and through prayer and crying out to him and asking him to fill you with his spirit and and, and to give you wisdom for the day. It means seeing your local church as what the New Testament describes it as, as not just a collection of, of good friends, but as the very body of Christ, as the place where brothers and sisters in Christ are who can come alongside and encourage and walk with you, and pray for you, and disciple you, make Christ your refuge. And finally, the last one is trust in God's eternal plan. From the moment the story starts from Abraham's calling and goes up to the moment of Stephen's trial. That is a span of nearly 2,000 years. Think about how the world has changed in 2,000 years. We're talking the times of Christ. We know how much the world has changed just in the last 10 years. Technology and all the things that we we see changing around us. Imagine change over 2,000 years, how the world has, has changed. Stephen is showing them God's plan didn't move at all. God had an eternal plan from his calling of Abraham to go to this land to my standing before you right now. From the time of Abraham, God promised something that Abraham didn't actually fully experience in his own lifetime. Something he could only take by faith. Because Hebrews even tells us that Abraham goes to this land, he doesn't know where he is going, but he follows God, ultimately setting his sights on a city that was designed and built by God, Hebrews 11 says, that is a heavenly city. Right from Abraham on, it is this following by faith in the eternal plan of God and the promise of God that there is something still ahead. All of the combined pain and hardships endured by Joseph. In slavery and imprisonment, and Moses and David. Throughout all of this, there is this enduring belief that the holy God of the universe is accomplishing a plan, and it's a good one, and he will glorify himself and redeem his people. Do we believe that? Do you believe that? While we're here on earth, the reason that we love people and live for Jesus and appeal to them to believe in him is because we know that ultimately there is no hope apart from him, that only in Christ is there hope. We believe in a sovereign God who is accomplishing his purposes and and who will accomplish all that he intends to do no matter what happens here on earth. We believe, as the prophet Habakkuk wrote, that if the whole world is collapsing and, and tomorrow looks inevitably worse than today, Habakkuk wrote, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Finish with a quote from Psalm 73, 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Father, we come before you as a people In need of refuge, Lord, we are tempted to flee so many directions to try to find joy, peace, escape, refuge in so many ways. We we are reminded again from the lips of Stephen as he endures his own martyrdom that you alone are the refuge. You alone are the one that even as an angry mob is destroying his life, he's looking up to heaven and seeing Jesus. Lord, help us to to take on that mindset by your spirit and your grace to pursue the refuge that is Christ, to believe fully in him. Father, if there's anyone listening this morning who is not fully trusting in Jesus Christ, that is fearful at all, uncertain at all about what will happen in death, about what lies ahead in eternity, may today be the day that you would bring them to yourself, call them to believe and trust in Jesus and in his saving grace. And Father, we who are following after Jesus Christ, give us strength. Cause us to be a humble people who cry out for your help. We desperately need it to be lights in the darkness. Cause us to remain faithful to you, we pray in Jesus' name.